Well, good morning. Sometimes I think, why do we preach when she does that? <laughs> I'm going to talk for 30 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And she just said exactly what we're going to say. So hopefully today you have come ready to hear from God. You know, we've been in a series over the last three weeks uh, called Overcomers. And it has been awesome to me that um, I've heard actually in several different settings, some of you say, I'm doing this as a step of faith over fear. Anybody ha have that experience over the last couple weeks where you were like, I don't really want to do this, I'm afraid of it, but as I heard Pastor Jake preach, I realized I need to take a step of faith. Same thing with the idea of, you know, uh, overcoming uh, our, our, abili our, our ability to compromise by having courage. And Pastor Andrea shared about that, that we need to be able to have courage so that we won't compromise on the things that God has taught us. And I just love that. I love when we leave here on Sunday and it begins this conversation. That to me is evident that the Holy Spirit is in this place when we gather and is working in our, in our hearts and our lives as we go on. So today is the final um, sermon in this series of overcomers. And we're going to talk about grace over guilt. Because if we're going to live an overcoming, a victorious life, especially in Christ, if we're going to live a life of freedom, then we really need to understand the role of grace. Because if we live under that weight of guilt, as, as Allison said, you know, we're really not going to experience the freedom and the things that God wants to do in us. Interestingly, so I was supposed to preach this sermon a couple weeks ago. Remember, the power was out. This morning we came in, we couldn't get the power working, honestly, for an hour. And I thought, we were laughing, like there's a common denominator here. <laughs> so I can't help but wonder what God wants to say to you personally this morning as we talk about experiencing and understanding grace. Because I think grace is hard to define. I think it's easy to say it's like, you know, it's the, um, it's the unmerited favor of God. It's the, it's the gift of God that we don't deserve. And I think our heads can know that. But I'm discovering over these last several weeks, I've been discovering that grace is better experienced than explained. Grace is something that we know it when we see it, but we may not even be able to describe it. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I was, um, I was out and about, I was at a, a business in um, Hatfield that I go to and started talking to this guy. I've talked with him before. He's a young adult guy. And uh, I happened to have a book with me. He actually, um, he actually asked me, well, what does, what's your book that you're reading? And I said, oh, it's called What's So Amazing About Grace? He was like, hmm, Grace. I'm not sure I know much about grace. Why are you reading it? Well, he knows I'm a pastor, and I said, well, I'm getting ready to preach a sermon on grace, and I'm just trying to wrap my head around what does it really mean. And he was like, well, what's your title? I said, Grace Over Guilt. He goes, oh, well, I don't know anything about grace, but let me tell you I know a thing or two about guilt. And he kind of went on. I mean, we sat there then for an hour, and he talked about how most days, He's just hoping to do more good than bad so that he doesn't hurt somebody or offend somebody that he really cares about. He talked about how he, he has this underlying sense that he's just never really good enough 
And he was, you know, he's like trying to date, and he was like, I don't even know if I'll ever really find true love because I feel like I always disappoint people. And I'm not sure that it's in the cards for me to be able to ever be in a real relationship. Then he also went on to talk about how he grew up in a Buddhist home. And I thought, that's kind of interesting. So I asked him the question, like, tell me more about being a Buddhist. Tell me what that, you know, what that experience was like. And he said, um, well, I said, what's your goal in life as a Buddhist? He said, well, I guess to be good enough. Like, to do more good than bad so that when this life is over, I can be reincarnated to something better. Okay, so how do you know if you're good enough? And he said, that's the question I live with every day. I mean, I guess the goal is to be good enough so that one day I can live in peace and harmony without any suffering. I said, well, who decides that you're good enough? And he said, I, I honestly don't know. And I think that's partly why I'm maybe not so much into the Buddhism thing as I'm getting older, because I just never really know if you're, if you're going to make the mark. Well, then another day I went to the library and I had gotten some books out about grace. And the librarian says, wow, what are you doing with all those books on grace? And I said, well, I'm studying because I'm going to write a sermon and we're going to talk about grace over guilt. And she said, huh, I could definitely write your part about guilt. I got nothing to say about grace. Then interestingly, I started having this conversation. Now it's a game to me, right? So I start talking to people. So I'm getting ready to preach on grace over guilt. What do you think about that? 90% of the time, even with people who say they know Jesus, the answer was, I think I know more about guilt than I do about grace. In fact, one of my friends said this. She said, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I know all about Catholic guilt. So can you make sure you talk about that? I was thinking, what in the world? Well, sure enough, I've had dozens of people over the past six weeks tell me about Catholic guilt. So I was like, I guess this is a thing. So I Googled Catholic guilt, and sure enough, there's plenty of information about it. You can call it Catholic guilt. You can just call it religious guilt. But here's when I ask people to unpack it. Here's kind of what they said. They're like, well, I just generally feel sorry or guilty for, here are some of the things, just being a failure when it comes to obeying the law of God. I mean, even when I'm doing nothing wrong, I still feel like I'm wrong. Or I feel guilty when I'm doing nothing that I should be doing something, and when I'm doing something, I feel guilty because I should maybe be doing nothing. Other people said, well, I feel guilty for just not being enough or not doing enough for God to love me. Other, another person told me, well, I guess I, it's that I feel like I could never live up to God's expectations. I mean, I couldn't live up to my parents' expectations. I can't live up to my spouse's expectations. So certainly, I don't think God, you know, buys all of that. Someone else said, sometimes I'm apologizing for things I didn't even do. I mean, I figure, even if I don't know what I did wrong, I must have done something wrong, so I'll just apologize ahead of time. Uh, I, another one, I just felt guilt, feel guilty because God is so perfect and I'm, I am not, so no matter how hard I try, I can't imagine that he really loves me, tolerates me maybe, but really loves me? I don't know about that. Sometimes, another friend said, 
I feel guilty for simply breathing and taking up space. Like I'm kind of unworthy to even be here. Honestly, I, I, I looked, when I looked that up, I thought, that's an overwhelming feeling to live under the weight of guilt, real or imagined. My one friend that I have known for years, I really like her. I know that she knows Jesus. I know that she loves Jesus. But as I thought about it, I realized almost every time I call her name, she responds with, yeah, what I do. I was thinking, that is crazy. I don't think I've ever said to her, hey, you did this wrong thing. And we've been friends for years. But the overall way that she responds is, what I do now, what's wrong? I, I, I've just been thinking, we often live like guilt overcomes grace. So if we look at the definition of guilt, you know, it really is actually about behavior. It's feeling bad for things that we've actually done wrong. So guilt in itself, in and of itself, is not wrong. We need guilt. We need to recognize there are things that we do that are wrong. And we should feel bad about them enough so that we change our behavior and we do something different. But we've taken it actually, to, especially in today's, in today's context, we've taken it further because we've actually taken a healthy sense of guilt and we've overlaid it with a sense of shame. A sense that says, I'm not just guilty because I did something wrong, but I am fundamentally wrong. I'm fundamentally bad. And we have this identity problem that ends up sounding like, so I don't deserve love. I, no wonder I don't have friends that I want because I don't des even deserve it. Who would want me? We begin to you know, feel uh, worthless and, and unlovable. In Lewis Smead's book, Shame and Grace, he describes shame like this. Shame is a very heavy feeling. It's a feeling that we do not measure up and maybe never will. It comes when no one else is looking at you but yourself. And what you see is a phony, a coward, a boring person, a failure, a person whose nose is too big or whose legs are too bony. Shame-prone people discount their positives. They magnify their flaws and they judge themselves by undefined ideals, translating criticism of what they do into a judgment of who they are. And they read their own shame in everybody else's mind. Ever feel that way? I mean, it's hard enough to carry the weight of guilt for the things we've actually done wrong, but the heavy weight of shame feeling like I'm worthless, not wanted, included, I don't measure up, I can't please you, can leave us feeling at times like life isn't even worth living. The weight of shame leaves us jumping to conclusions that whatever's gone wrong in life is actually my fault. Like, um, you know, it's, it's because I'm not good enough. Our culture sends this message that says everyone is loved, but we feel like everyone but me. We... We feel like, you know, we hear this phrase, every kid's a winner, but then I don't get into the college that I want to get into, I don't get the job that I applied for, and I figure it's no other reason than me. When we live 
a life where guilt and shame overcome grace. We're less feeling lonely, untrusting, anxious, depressed, like we're walking on eggshells everywhere we go. I mean, I picture guilt and shame exactly like, like Allison you know, said that, like this heavy weight that just, it just weighs us down. And, and you see people as we interact. Have you sat with someone and you just feel like there's this cloud that seems to hang over them, something that just is over, you know, overwhelming? And I, I feel like a lot of us have had some religious teaching that's actually only half true. I mean... Like I said, on one hand, we are guilty. Whether we've broken God's law once or a million times, we have done wrong things, and we are born naturally separated from God. In fact, we actually have a two-part problem. We're guilty as charged because of sin, because I do wrong things, which is the cause of my real guilt, but I actually sin because I'm a sinner. So in, in essence, my identity naturally is tied up with the fact that I am not worthy, that I am a sinner, and, and both my behavior and my identity are actually the problem that the gospel actually comes to address. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace and his great mercy began before we were ever even born, and God knew that our guilt would overcome our grace, so he provided a two-part solution to our two-part problem. First of all, by the grace of God, Jesus Christ paid the price for our sinful behavior. The Bible tells us that he shed his blood and died on the cross, that it literally covers our sin. It literally like separates our sin from us. You can read in the scripture where it says, I have separated your sin as far as the east is from the west. And God looks at us a completely different way when we're in Christ because Jesus Christ's, Christ's blood has covered over our sin. In fact, if we, for, if we confess our sins, he says that he also washes our guilty conscience. He wants to clean our mind and our heart because our sin is gone. He wants us to be able to leave it in the past. But somehow we keep returning to it and pulling it back. But secondly, the Bible says that after we're born again, we're literally made new and our identity really is changed. The same God who we say we believe in for salvation has also said, you matter to me. And he said, I don't see you as you were, I see you as you now are because of me. If we're walking in Christ, we're now a child of God and we have we take the advantage of all the privileges and all the rights that come with that as we come to know Jesus. We are now, we get the privilege of walking with him and knowing him. Even when other people are trying to heap guilt on us, when we're trying to convince ourselves that we're failures, you know, God tells a different story. He transforms our identity. In Romans 3.23, it says it this way. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's the picture, carrying the heavy weight of the rocks of guilt. But the next verse in Romans 3.24 says this, but God. Let's just stop there before we go on. Right? I mean, the only remedy.
remedy to the problem is God himself. And it says, but God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty and guilt for our sins. The next passage I want to look at is in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and it's kind of long. So I'm going to ask if you would stand with me as we read this passage from God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, it's going to be on the screen, verses 1 through 10. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, who is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us. Look around. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. That is guilt over grace. Verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we were united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are God's masterpiece as you have a seat. You can take a seat, but what do you think about that? I mean, if you have a masterpiece, if I create something amazing, I'm going to tell you about it. In fact, I'm like, you know, I like to cook. So when I cook something, I probably say 10 times during the meal, isn't this amazing? Doesn't this taste so good? And, and I'm sure the people around the table are just like, okay, it's dinner, whatever. I'm like, no, oh. Wow, this is really good. <laughs> like, I just, I just, like, I want, I want everybody to know, like, hey, we did this thing. I mean, I don't care if I cooked it or we cooked it together, but there's something about that, that when we're together, I'm like, I want to show it off. If I make something, I, I had my bathroom redone this year. I was on sabbatical early this year, and I put, I turned a bedroom into a bathroom. Well, I'm so excited about it. It's my own personal Lambert Street, like, masterpiece. What I, I can't help it. People come, and I'm like, you want to use the bathroom? <laughs> you have to go to the bathroom? You've got to go see the bathroom. I mean, people I don't even know. I think they're just a little bit like, what? What's the big deal? But I'm so excited about it. I've waited so long. I've waited for 10 years to have a second bathroom now that my kids have left the house. <laughs> I don't know. But I finally have. So, I mean, I'll say, have you, have you seen? Yeah, yes, I've seen the bathroom. <laughs> yep, yep, looks great. I don't think anybody cares. I just... It's, it's a masterpiece in my mind. 
It's come together in a way that I, I was like, I can't believe this actually happened. Imagine what God is saying when he looks at you isn't like, oh, you used to be such a sinner. You used to be such, you know, this, such that. He says, he looks at us through the eyes of Jesus Christ and says, grace wins. Let go of the guilt. I mean, at the end of the project, one of the things I had to do was get rid of all the junk. And there was something about, like, you couldn't see how great the bathroom looked if you had to keep stepping over the tools. If you had to keep, you know, moving all the stuff aside. So it really didn't feel like it was finished until everything else was cleared away. And you could, like, you know, I wanted people to walk in and be like, what? That didn't happen. But, you know, I mean, it's a bathroom. But you, you see what I'm saying? I mean, God looks at us as his masterpiece. And he's not making junk. He has made us for his pleasure. And he loves us. The good news of the gospel is this. That the posture of Jesus is one of open invitation. He's not standing here waiting for us to, you know, make a mistake so he can be like, ha ha, I gotcha. Oh, you messed it up again. No, he has said there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He, his posture is one of joy. His posture is one that says, come on, be with me, follow me, not hurry up and follow the rules. His grace has erased our guilt so that we can be overcomers. In Ephesians 1, verses 6 through 8, it says it this way. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us with his kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. You know, we sometimes live like, I don't have any idea what to do. We, we live with this, this heavy weight of shame. And God is like, I want to shower you with kindness. I want to shower you with wisdom and understanding. If you would simply release the guilt, you will hear my great delight and pleasure over you. Um, in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, C.J. Mahaney kind of says it this way. And this struck me because, like I said, so many people who I know are following Jesus continue to carry this weight of guilt and shame. And I think this is interesting because I think the one side of us has probably embraced a God who's harsh, a God who is a, just the, you know, a rule maker and one who's waiting for us to slip and fall. And the, the glory of the graciousness of God is that he wants us to understand that he's got us. It's like a child. When a child makes a mistake, when my two-year-old couldn't, you know, pour the milk and spilled it, I didn't be like, you're so stupid. You missed the glass. Now I have to clean the floor. No, instead it was like, hey, no problem. Let me help you hold. This is so heavy. Isn't this so heavy? Let's do it together. I can help you with that. But here's what C.J. Mahaney has to say. Don't buy the lie that cultivating condemnation and wallowing in your shame is somehow pleasing to God. Or that living with a constant low-grade guilt will somehow promote holiness and spiritual maturity. It's just the opposite. 
God is glorified when we believe with all our hearts that those who trust in Christ can never be condemned. It's only when we receive his free gift of grace and we live in the good of total forgiveness that we're able to turn from old sinful ways of living and walk in grace. You know, we have an enemy that loves to discourage us. He loves to make us feel like guilt overcomes grace by trying to make us feel shameful and worthless. But I read this quote from St. Teresa of Avila, and I thought this was so fascinating. Listen to what she says. The devil will try to upset you by accusing you of being unworthy of the blessings that you have received. But simply remain cheerful and do your best to ignore the devil's nagging. If need be, even laugh at the absurdity of the situation. Satan, the epitome of sin itself, accuses you of unworthiness? Just imagine that. That's powerful. Why do we let the the enemy, why do we let people who actually have nothing to do with our future, like, a heap guilt and shame on us so that we adopt an identity that says, my guilt is too big. What I want you to hear this morning is your God is bigger than your guilt and your shame. And he has come so that we could redefine what grace, uh, life and what grace looks like. Look, look at the picture that the psalmist paints. In, uh, he's painting a picture of God in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read it first from the message. God is sheer mercy and grace, not easily angered. He's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold, nor hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor does he pay us back in full for our wrongs. Does that make you really like, (sighs) let me read it out of the voice translation. God is compassionate and merciful. When we cross all the lines, he's patient with us. When we struggle against him, he lovingly stays with us, changing, convicting, prodding. He will not constantly criticize, nor will he hold a judge a grudge forever. Thankfully, God does not punish us for our sins and our depravity as we deserve. In his mercy, He tempers justice with peace. No one's saying that we haven't done wrong things. You and I both know we have. But we serve a God who looks at that and what justice demands. He sent his son to pay that price so that the justice could be tempered with his peace. And we could experience that grace. Throughout the New Testament, we see grace defined as a gift of God's compassion and goodness and mercy, or as the favor and undeserved kindness that God shows to unworthy sinners. We see grace as the unconditional love that we don't deserve, that we can't earn by any good works, that can't be lost because of anything bad we've done. It's an experience, it's a gift, it's a relationship that causes joy, pleasure, and delight in both the recipient and in the giver. 
freely given without any expectation of return. You know what it says in the scriptures, right? That like when one sinner repents, what happens in heaven? Everybody's rejoicing because it's a party. Like, yes, they finally gave up the junk so they could come to the banquet. They gave up, you know, the, the pittance of nothing so that they could have everything. The, the party isn't because, yay, they stopped doing wrong. No, we come to Christ, and there's a whole lot in our journey that we need to work out. And as we become more and more like Christ, God is there, constantly help us. The spirit is put within us to be able to say, I want to encourage you. The biggest cheerleader that we actually have is the Holy Spirit within us, who's constantly saying, you can do it. I can take you there. You know this isn't where you want to be. This is where you want to go. And I can't wait to, to come along with you on the journey. I'm just wondering if there are any Phillies fans in the house. Anybody got that? Okay. Because I've been a Philly sports fan for like 50 years. And I'm not sure I've ever heard the words grace and Philadelphia sports fan in the same sentence. Ever. Until the first week of August. If you're not a huge baseball fan, you may not have heard this story. So let me try to paint the picture. In the off season, the Phillies signed a, short, a shortstop, Trey Turner. He, is, he was a powerhouse ball player, and they were so impressed with him. They gave him an 11-year, $300 million contract. I mean, stop right there. What, what in the Wow. And to be honest, for the first four months of the six-month-long baseball season, anybody know how he played? He wasn't just terrible. He was embarrassing. I mean, you know, the first like month, people are like, well, it takes a little while to get used to a new club and, you know, be in the team. And second month comes, third month comes. By July, he'd get up to bat and Citizens Bank Park would boo him. In fact, the last week of July, Trey Turner said, even my mom says she's booing me. So I thought it fascinating that when one of the producers of Philadelphia Sports Radio looked at the situation in the beginning of August, he said, when we were to give the guy some grace, I mean, he's going to be on our team for 11 years. Well, we just give him some grace. How about when he comes to bat this week, August 4th, Friday, August 4th, what if when he comes to bat, we just give him a standing ovation, that we fill him with encouragement, like, look, we're about you. Even if you don't succeed, we're going to cheer you on. Well, first of all, true Phillies fans are like, I'm a Philadelphia fan. That doesn't work that way. But unbelievably, on a Friday, August 4th, Trey Turner gets up to bat, and almost 40,000 fans are in Citizens Bank Park. And look at what happens that day. This is before he even does a thing. deserve it. Well, that night, at all four of his ba at bats, the fans cheered him, encouraging him. There were signs all over the place. Let's go, Trey. We believe in you, Trey. 
finally, he hits an RBI single, and the crowd goes wild. Line drive, base it into right field. Stotts around third, heading home. He'll score. Trey Turner comes through. Oh, now steal a base. He laid off the breaking ball time, and he got that fastball. And just smoked it into right field. Those two outs, Bryson Stotts. Usually the crowd doesn't go that wild for a single. If you're not a baseball player, I mean, a single's like, eh, you made it to first base, right? I mean, so the crowd's usually like, eh, yeah, all right, we got somebody on base. The place goes wild. Well, that's Friday night. Saturday night's game, he gets up there, and they're playing against the Royals, and he gets up, standing ovation. Everybody's, everybody's cheering for him. They're like, okay, we're going to give the guy some grace. What happens? Show us the picture of what happens on Saturday night. The first and second, Turner yes. in a high. Fly Notice the score. Deep left field. He answered their call. It's gone. A three-run home run for Trey. And the Phillies have just taken the lead. Score change. They it's win the game. He, game. he not only hits a home run, but he it's a three-run. I mean, it takes the score up so that then they end up winning the game. I mean, what a beautiful picture of grace. On Sunday, Trey was so overwhelmed with the response of the Philly fans that he actually put billboards up all around Philadelphia saying, thank you, Philly. And he has been on fire ever since. I mean, last night they lost. It was heartbreaking that they could have won in the very last pitch. But last night, even last night, he hit a home run again. He has had like something like 11 or 12 home runs since August 4th. He's had over 10 doubles. He's had over 30 runs batted in. One game last week, he actually hit two home runs in the same game. And in over 30 games since the fourth, he's hit in all but two games. Obviously, this modern-day parable has its flaws, because we are Philadelphia fans. I mean, come on. If he does not keep producing, he will hear about it. But you know, all parables are just to, to point to one, one main thought. I wonder what would happen if we received the undeserved grace of God and allowed his forgiveness to cleanse our guilty conscience. What if we believed so much in Jesus, if we were so confident in his, his, his salvation that we would also be confident in what the scripture has to say about how much he loves us, that he, he bought us with a price so that grace could overcome guilt. What if we were to not only experience that for ourselves, but what if we were to become people that lived lives of grace? Instead of being like, ah, you said you're a Christian, but have you seen your Facebook page? Huh, you think, you think you've got it together, you're so, you know, and we're pointing our fingers at everybody else. What if we stopped that and we looked at people with the eyes of Christ that, that really give grace over guilt? I, I've been reading through the Gospels with that lens in mind. And I, I just want to give you some of the ways that Jesus himself embodied grace. When he chose his disciples, they weren't educated, wealthy, or religious. In fact, pretty much every one of them was like, wait, you picked me? 
He invited himself to dinner at the house of people like the tax collector Zacchaeus that everyone in town hated. And Zacchaeus was so shocked that Jesus would find him worthy enough to enter his house. Jesus healed and touched sick people, lepers, demon-possessed people, women who had bleeding problems, dead people, the very people that the religious people would not ever even speak to, let alone touch. Jesus had compassion on beggars. He stopped the stoning of a woman who was guilty of committing adultery, but he said to her, I don't condemn you. You're free. Go and sin no more. Great guilt. When he told stories to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looked like, he, he told stories about how much it grieved him when someone who wasn't in relationship with him was far away. That's why he talked about the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, all saying, when everything else is lost, I will go and find you because you are of great value to me. When a well-known immoral woman came and poured perfume on Jesus' feet and then cleaned his feet with her hair. You know what the other people in the room said? They were, I mean, they were, they were godly people. You want to know what they said? Does he not know who she is? She's such a sinner. If he only knew, he would never let her touch him. But Jesus forgave her sins, took away her guilt, and sent her off in peace. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus act towards people because he's moved with compassion, not anger. It, it, so many people who didn't deserve his grace or forgiveness, didn't deserve to be included, had nothing to offer him. Whether there was a Samaritan woman at the well who had five husbands and was living with another man, Jesus said, I don't condemn you. The woman who touched the hem of his garment, pleading for healing, grace over shame. To the thief on the cross, Jesus said, you believe them, Messiah? Done. Then today, you'll be with me in paradise. Grace over guilt. With Jesus, you know, think about how he treated the soldiers. At the very end of his life, who spit on him, beat him, made fun of him. Jesus' response, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Grace over guilt. Jesus, though always calling people to repent and to stop sinning, was the walking picture of grace. In fact, when we do read angry words for Jesus, do you know who they're directed at? The religious people. The religious people who thought they were so all together that they had every right to condemn everybody else. And Jesus said, you have completely missed the point. I have given you grace. Jewish people, so that you can share it with those who do not experience it. And I can't help but wonder, what does Jesus say to us? Man, I've given you grace. So how about you live out grace to everyone around you? This morning we're going to take communion together as we close out our time. And I've just been struggling with like, how do we define, how can we walk away this morning understanding the power of grace? And so this morning I woke up early and opened up just today's devotions. Listen to this verse from Isaiah 55, 1. 
Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy grain and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Without money and without cost, simply accept it as a gift from God. Mark, would you come up here for a second? I was looking at that and I'm thinking, how can that be true? Like, what if today we're offering salvation? We're offering peace. We're offering joy. We're offering today grace without guilt. And I say, you know, and I say, um, hey, hey, Mark, um, to get that, you owe me a million dollars. Do you have that? Not with me. <laughs> well, if, can you pay me later? Can you pay me later? No. I'll loan it to you. Okay. <laughs> but you have to pay it back. No. Okay. So listen to this verse again. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy grain and salt. That doesn't make any sense. He just says, you who have no money, and then says, come and buy. Does that make sense? How am I going to buy it? I'd be standing there like, that's stupid. I just said I have no money. So how am I going to buy the grain, the milk, the wine, all of that? How am I going to buy that? And, and like Mark would answer, I, I, I don't have that much. Imagine I'm Jesus. I say, I got you. You don't have to pay me back. In fact, here's the picture of grace. I want you so bad to be with me, I paid the price. I, I've shed my blood. I gave my body. I left heaven. Everything so that you and I could be friends. That's grace. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. You could walk away from here and not talk to me for months, but I will still be your friend. Because as Je if I'm Jesus, there's nothing you can do that will rip us away from our relationship once that's begun. If you accept the salvation of Jesus Christ, if you say, I know Jesus, I want his forgiveness, then he has paid the price. In fact, he's like, here, stock up on it, take more. I paid it. I've paid it. You can come back over and over again. You can come back next time. You can come back tomorrow. You can come back a year from now. I love you too much to leave you there, but I love you so much. I'm paying the cost. I've got you. That's it. I, I can't help but wonder when I go out to lunch with somebody and somebody says, I got the bill. I'm always like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. And, and there's a part, you know, I have a friend who every time I say thank you, she says thank you. And then I say, no, no, thank you. Let's, we're done. Then she sends a note, and I'm like, stop sending a note. We're done. Just, just go. Like, no, I'm, I'm thanked. I wonder this morning if you need grace, if you want to experience what it means to really know Jesus Christ, would you know that he has already paid the price for you to do that? So we're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to ask that you, when you come, we have somebody in all four corners of the room. I'm going to ask that you go up there, give them your first name, okay? So you're going to get up there, and you're going to be like, I'm Tabby, um, you know, and, and go up there, and they will give you communion. I want you to take communion this morning as a picture of the grace of God that has washed away and overcome your guilt and your shame, and he's going to cheer you need gluten-free communion, it's in this corner. 
So the only place that has gluten-free is in this corner. But you can go to that corner for other communion as well. And if you are, it would rather stay in your seat, raise your hand, and we have a few ushers that will bring communion to you. But would you go now and receive the gift of grace this morning? You're, you're welcome to go. One of the four corners.